Uh, I did not get a chance to see a show of hands on who wasn't here, but I will say this. Uh, I'm not going to go over or review much of what was talked about last week. Uh, so the main points are in your bulletin, which is just simply that sex is beautiful, uh, that it is spiritual, that it is vulnerable, that it is an amazing gift from God. And uh, we have to properly understand it in our context. Um, so we covered a lot of things last week. We're going to cover even more this week. Um, and I'm excited about our particular topic, so I'm going to just dive straight in, all right? Um, last week, I also did this. Um, I'm finding that uh, I'm having a decent success rate with starting elephant talks with caveats. So um, that's what I'm going to do again. I'm going to start with some caveats. The reason that this has worked well is because in the past I didn't give caveats and then I would get a lot of like emails and coffee interchanges to discuss what I didn't cover or what I didn't say or whatever. So my hope is that these caveats will clear up some things even before we get into the subject even further. So the first caveat is a bit of a reminder from last week and I think it's important uh, to restate, and that is this. You must be, I must be open to changing our personal script. We talked about this idea that the church has had a history of scripts as it relates to the topic of sex. Some of those scripts have not been the most accurate, most clear, most helpful, uh, have really in some ways uh, damaged our particular perspective of sex. But each and every one of us walks around with a script. We walk around with a, um, a, a, a kind of a playbook for those sports enthusiasts. We walk around with the stated expression of the way in which we live or understand sexuality. And my challenge to us in the caveat is this. We must be open to having our script adjusted by the Spirit of God. If we're not open to that, then we are frankly just wasting our time. Uh, we're just talking about a subject and not actually being open to the Spirit moving within us. Uh, again, last week we covered uh, the gift of sex and how we have maybe in some ways uh, thwarted or twisted our understanding of it. Uh, I would also say this, that some of us are carrying around scripts that have a lot of hurt and pain in them. Uh, that from our past we're walking around with scripts that are have been hurtful or Others of us I know, because I've been in conversation, are carrying scripts that are actually somebody else's, but we've been told we have to play this particular part, or we've been told that this is the only way that we can understand our script. Um, and so, uh, even a little further than that, some of us are so convinced our script is so dialed in and so perfect and so set that we're not even willing to consider that it could possibly be wrong. Um, that concept reminds me of what I call the myth of Greenland. Many of you are familiar with Greenland. It is a uh, beautiful country. You can throw a picture of Greenland up there for me. Most of us are familiar with it. Uh, the thing that I remember from being in elementary school and in high school talking about Greenland is that you say it's the opposite of Iceland. So Iceland is really green, and Greenland is pretty much just ice, right? And uh, it's this amazing space, mountainous, icy, um, pretty unique. 
And uh, I remember always thinking of Greenland as like, man, I can't even imagine how much time it would take to explore that. How much time it would take to like traverse the whole continent, what all of that would look like. And, and uh, so I then started to realize a little bit later on that um, things about Greenland were a little bit different than I remember them being. Um, I always assumed it was quite huge. So here would be an example. If you take Greenland and you were to place it or translate it over top of Africa, you would notice the exceptional size of Greenland. And um, for most of us are familiar with this, but I, this was news to me when I was a junior in high school. In a junior in high school, I was told this idea that when you take a spherical object and then you translate that to a flat surface, and you're trying to help everyone see what it should look like, in order to do that, certain objects become a little bit smaller than they're intended to be. Other objects become a little bit larger than they're intended to be. And therefore, you have a distorted picture of what is reality. And again, I know most of us are familiar with this, so it's not a new idea. But this is actually the size of Iceland compared to Africa. Because of the distortion of the map, it looks far greater than its true actual size. Now, at if any point in your life, like me, when this became a revelation in my junior year of high school, if at any point in your life you were kind of like, oh, man, I thought it was just a ginormous space, then you must be open to the possibility of change. You must be open to the idea that you thought something that isn't in reality true. If you sit here in this moment and this is the first time that you realize the size of Greenland, you also must be open and maybe even more so to the idea that you might not know everything and neither do I. I say this because hopefully it encourages us to remember that we might not actually know everything there is to know about sexuality and I don't either. So we have to be open, we have to be learning, we have to be a community that's willing to be convicted and challenged. Second caveat is this, don't miss the forest through the trees. Don't miss the forest through the trees. Don't become so fixated on some statement that's made or some point that I bring up that you miss the whole of the message. For example, if some of you are probably still thinking about Greenland, don't be, all right? Just set it aside. And just keep moving, okay? Um, and that's what I'm going to ask you to do. If something comes up that you're like, I don't know, don't keep stewing on it, jot a note down, come back to it later, keep tracking, all right? Because I think it's going to be important for us to get through all of this this morning. Number three, I think we have to acknowledge our role and responsibility in this topic and to not just point the finger at somebody else. We have to point the finger at ourselves first as it comes to this topic. We have to acknowledge what our role and responsibility is. And here's why I bring this up. Um, about, what, a year and a half ago, we talked about elephants. We talked about how we wanted to bring up this subject. We passed it out to all the small group leaders. They created a list of all the topics we would cover. And then from there we passed out that list to the community and we said vote, however you want to vote. But vote for what is the subjects that you think are the most important that you need to hear, that you need to be challenged with. 
And then we also had you vote for the top 10 of the subjects or the topics you think that the community most needs to hear or that the person sitting next to you most needs to hear. And we just tallied the results. And the way that it worked when it came to this subject of sex is, I think, quite fascinating. The results were this. You said that you needed to hear of all of the subjects that were listed, sex as the number five of the top ten. Yeah, it's pretty average. Yeah, I think it's important. Sure, we could talk about it. Yeah, if we get around to it, if it makes the list, that's fine. But for you, personally, it was a five. For what your fellow pew sitter needs to hear, your fellow small group leader needs to hear, your fellow whoever needs to hear, number one. Number one, right? <laughs> I don't really need to hear about it, but he certainly does. I don't need to hear about it, but I know my small group is really in need of this subject. That is how we answered it as a community. I think it says something about this topic because I think it's important for us to recognize we all have a role and responsibility to play, and we have to look at ourselves first. Before we look at anyone else, before we point the finger, we all have to hear this topic. It is of great importance. Number four. This is not my or our final word on the topic. I say that to say this. I reserve the right to continue to develop, progress, and grow. I know you know this, but I just felt like it's important to restate it. No message that I ever give is the final word on a topic. I am con constantly growing, developing, changing, learning, and so are you. If what you thought about Greenland just a few minutes ago has changed, you're developing and growing and you're different, right? And our ideas and our thoughts have to begin to continue to evolve. And uh, I think that's important. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. I went back and read the talk I gave in 2012 on this subject. And then I reread the, the sermon I gave on this in 2014. And I will tell you that in one particular area, I've gotten stronger than ever before in this topic. And it, that is the subject of covenant. I am far more convinced of covenant and of fidelity and uh, of faithfulness to one person than I have ever been. And so if you were to go back then and hear what I said then, you would sense that it was important, but maybe not to the level that I currently feel it. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that we're always evolving and this is not our final word or my final word on the topic. Number five, last caveat in case you're wondering. Number five, I need about four more weeks to do this topic justice, okay? Um, what we've been able to cover in one week uh, is impossible for us to really get after the complexity of this. And so we have decided to set aside some time in this next year, 2019, uh, to tackle this subject again, to try to give it due justice, to go further and deeper into uh, what God's word is communicating about the importance of sexuality. So I want you to know in advance it will be impossible for me to cover everything you were hoping I would cover this week. 
In fact, I've had several small group leaders come to me and say, hey, here's what our small group is hoping to hear this week. And boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, that's impossible. There's not a chance. So um, please be gracious. We won't get to all of it, but uh, I think we'll get to some important things this morning. Uh, which takes us to, we're done with the caveats, and now it takes us into what I have sensed we are supposed to talk about related to this subject. And I want to take a little bit of a different approach this morning uh, than perhaps you might have imagined I would take. I want to take an approach that Jesus took in Matthew chapter 23, uh, when he had gathered with a group of leaders, when he had gathered with a group of scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders of the day. Uh, these were the people that uh, were the most bought in to what he was trying to say in some respects, because it was about, in their mind, about religion or about faith. And yet this was the group that uh, also was like curious as to what he would say. And in Matthew 23, Jesus utters a set of woes to the leaders. Now, some people suggest that the woes are actually the reverse or the opposite equivalent of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. So in Matthew 5, he states these amazing statements that we call the Beatitudes, and then he reverse engineers them and communicates the woes to the religious leaders. Uh, I would almost suggest it's what, what he's doing there is he's saying the Beatitudes to those who want and believe they need Jesus. And then he's saying the woes to those who think they already have him. And I think that is an important distinction. Uh, I also want to say this about woes. Woes are not intended uh, for anything other than conviction. So they're not about shame. The church has historically shamed the topic of sex. That is not our intention this morning. Our intention is to convict, to challenge, to cause us to question things, uh, but not to shame. So we're going to go over a set of woes this morning. Uh, I'm going to start each woe with the statement, woe to you, new community. And here's what I want you to hear when I say that. I want you to hear three things. One, when you hear woe to you, new community, you should hear woe to you, Russ, woe to you, Glenn, woe to you, Beth, Gwen, whoever. Woe to you, whoever individual you are. And maybe the Spirit of God will take something said that's a woe and will convict you personally about it. So woe to you, new community, is not just a big corporate thing. It might be a specific you thing, that you need to be challenged or convicted in a particular area. The second idea behind that, woe to you, new community, it could be a statement to our collective expression of faith here at New Community. Maybe there's something that as you're listening to it in small group, you might say, man, that is something we as a small group or we as a whole church body actually need to think about and wrestle with. But it could also mean, woe to you, Church Universal, Church of Spokane, Church of America, Church of the World, right? That whenever we use that language, we're talking about the people of God and not the institutions. So help us to to recognize that when I say woe to you, new community, it, could, it has all those layers. And it's not for me to determine which of those uh, belongs to you. Hopefully the Spirit of God will uh, do that with and for you. So, here we go. Woe to you, new community. Number one, woe to you, new community, for making sex about you rather than the other. I think we have historically 
uh, been a group of people, not just, again, us, that have taken a selfish rather than a self-giving approach to sex. We've made it about ourselves. We've taken that which we described last week as beautiful and vulnerable and spiritual and made it just about me and my desires and what it is I want. Farley makes this statement, only a sexuality formed and shaped with love has the possibility for integration into the whole of the human personality. At its most intense and most exhilarating heights, the experience of sex combines embodied love and desire, conversation and communication, openness to the other in the intimacy of embodied selves, transcendence into fuller selves, and even encounter with God. I mean, that is a beautiful statement of the expression of what it means when it's in its right context for sex to be this fully embodied thing for us as sexual beings. It is of great importance that we understand that, but I would suggest that we've twisted it and made it about ourselves. For some of us, it has become a desire to be known has been so deep within us that what we long for is identity and connection and relationship that we have foregone that through community or through companionship. And what we've done is we've sought to fulfill that need for intimacy through sex with anyone at any time. We have also just sought to feel good. We have uh, given way to our urges or animal instincts to just feel good rather than to enter into lasting relationship. What we want is that temporary feeling, even if it comes with remorse, than we would to actually understand the ways of God. We have used sex for power and control. Again, that's making it about us rather than about the other. We talked last week about porn and self-pleasure. Those are examples of us saying, I can get it when I want it, how I want it. I don't have to worry about anyone else. It's just about me. But I would suggest that we've twisted that even into relationships where what we do is we use sex as manipulation. We manipulate people with it. Uh, In marriage, that might look like withholding sex for control in the relationship. Or it might look like manipulating emotions of your partner, manipulating emotions of your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or even a stranger so that they will somehow lower their expectations or convictions and will allow you to get what you want. Sex has always been intended to be the giving of yourself to another, always. Tim Keller describes it this way, sex is God's invented way to give yourself to someone else so deeply that it results in personal transformation. And I am convinced that there are radical consequences when sex, we make it about ourselves. And so the first woe to us as a community is this, don't make sex about you, but rather make it about the other. Stop being selfish as it comes to sex. Second, woe to you, new community, for believing your actions and attitudes towards sex only impact you. Sex always includes another. 
I think one of the greatest lies that we buy into is that ah, what I do only impacts me. It only affects me. I don't have to worry about anyone else. It's only about me. The truth is, it's always inclusive of another. Always. It doesn't matter if even in your mind right now you're thinking about pornography, whether it's videos, whether it's pictures. It always has another human soul involved. Always. And we discount that. We um, find ways to get around not thinking about that. But the truth is it always involves someone else. And the actions and the decisions you make as it relate to sex always impact other people. Always. I know in our small group alone, we have felt devastating effects of sex gone wrong. A couple in our community, someone committed adultery on the other in our small group. And that had devastating effects, not just on the couple. That had effects on our whole group. That had effects on the group that took in one of the members of that marriage into their group, and it affected their group. It affected our group as we had to wrestle with them to try to salvage the marriage, to try to keep it together. The kinds of conversations and the late nights, and the, it affected us deeply. The truth is, a lot of small groups in our community have had to wrestle with the pain of this particular topic. Where someone has betrayed someone else or someone is not even considerate of the impact of their decisions on a particular weekend and it is fracturing relationships, it is impacting our small groups, it's impacting the community as a whole. Because it always impacts another. There are countless marriages in this community that I've had conversations with, that other staff members have had conversations with, that some decision that was made when one of the parties in the marriage are 17, 20, 21, 23, whatever age it was, have lasting effect on their marriage. The freedom or lack thereof in their marriage sexually is part of the consequences of those decisions having been made. The kind of conversations, the emotional baggage, the discussions that have to be had, all of that is just weighing heavy on marriages in our community. Several years ago, I remember someone sharing with us that she was at a party with a group of friends. They were kind of all just mingling, hanging out, and someone from her college days walked into the party. Don't know how they were invited, don't know how the connection was made, but in walks a person she barely knew, but she had been with at a party in college where she engaged with him sexually. More than a decade later, she had never seen him since that one party at that one time. Their last action was an intimate action. And let's just say that the emotions that surfaced in that moment when she saw that individual were not joy and excitement and an eagerness to catch up on fond memories of college days. Rather, there was a deep pit in her stomach. And there was a feeling of wondering, how do I tell my husband, and should I? It was a time where she spent trying to figure out, how do I overcome the shame I feel from that moment? Your actions and your decisions always affect more than you. Always. 
So I, we cannot buy into that lie that it only impacts us. The third woe. Woe to you, new community, for trying to figure out how far is too far while neglecting dignity, respect, and love. Probably one of my favorite questions as a youth pastor was, uh, youth pastor, how far is too far? Yeah? Where's the line? Obviously, uh, we know that if you're asking that question, you're already asking the wrong question, right? Uh, but it's, it's uh, easy for us to think about that. It's easy for us to describe that. But uh, I often told the students in youth ministry that you probably don't want me to define the line. So maybe it's best that you don't ask or, if better yet, take that up with your parents. But the truth is, if we start to ask that question, there is a general way that the Bible describes it. It says, wherever you think the line is, wherever you thought the line was, wherever you started to define where the line is as a couple or an individual, wherever that line is, the scriptures are pretty clear with one idea by, by that line. And that is this, flee it. Wherever you think the line is, flee it. Go the other direction. The scriptures say this, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. First Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then it goes on to say that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that we have been bought with a price, so our body really is no longer our own. Therefore, glorify God with your body. The command is always flee. But I would suggest that what many of us, by asking it, are seeking to do is to just creep closer. How far can I get or how close can I get to the line where God set a particular standard? And honestly, the answer is to flee it. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or, uh, or else total abstinence. Now this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong. He's just being really straightforward. He's being really clear of where what he would consider to be the line, right? But here's something I think we don't talk about enough as it comes to this partic particular idea, and that is this. That I think we can develop particular muscles of self-control before we ever enter into relationship or before we ever enter into marriage that are vital to our success in marriage. Part of why I think we have a lack of commitment in marriage, part of why I think we have a lack of sexual commitment in marriage is because we have not practiced commitment before marriage. What I mean is if we can begin to say no on dating, if we can begin to stick to our boundaries now, if we can say no in the present, we increase our ability to say no later. It's a simple principle, right? If we, 
if we can establish some strength of self-control, if we can um, say no to things we want to do but maybe shouldn't do, if we can develop that muscle, that strength, that competency, then what happens later when we're in a compromising situation or when I'm at a work party or when I'm uh, getting too close to a coworker, or when I'm making stupid decisions at the bar, that I actually have the ability in those moments to say no because I've trained myself to say no. That I can actually develop the strength to make those decisions. And when we are faced with needing to make good and important and right decisions in marriage or in a committed relationship, often it is our lack of practice in saying no in other areas of life that make it difficult for us to say no in those times. So my encouragement would be to begin to practice and stop asking the question of how far, but rather, can I begin to develop the muscles of self-control? Next, woe to you, new community, for being casual about purity in self and others while watching the devastating effects around you. I think we have probably taken far too casual of an approach to this important subject. I will suggest that we as staff have taken too casual of approach. Maybe our small groups have taken too casual. Maybe you have been too casual. In fact, uh, one of my pet peeves as a youth pastor was uh, accountability groups. Not because I thought accountability groups were bad, I think they can be very helpful. It's just I think most accountability groups were like an exercise in feeling good about the bad decision you just made. You'd walk into small group, you'd sit down, accountability, you hang out, start to say something. How was your week? How'd you do? I know we're keeping each other accountable to this. And then the first person goes, yeah, it wasn't a very good week for me. And while I do think it's important at times to go, hey, I understand, I'm sorry, there is grace, but let's keep the line, let's keep focused. Usually it's like, oh, you said that, okay, Greg, because my week was horrible too, yeah. And instead of it being actually something where we're holding each other to something, it becomes something where we just kind of go, yeah, I, it's been hard for me too. Yeah, that's life. Oh, well, maybe next week, right? And I think what we desperately need is not a casualness about this subject, but a deep investment in this subject. I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor in Indiana, um, he, uh, my friend and I were uh, like co-leaders of the youth group. He was overseeing senior high. I was overseeing junior high. And there was one particular morning, uh, he had a senior high small group of guys that he did accountability with. And they uh, had gotten together, and they specifically were talking about the area of sexual purity. They were trying to challenge each other to live lives of purity, to make good decisions, to avoid certain actions. Um, they were specifically talking around the subjects of porn and masturbation and, and just uh, sexual expression with their uh, significant others. And... Um, they had been in this group two, three, four months and have been describing areas of uh, the times they have faltered and they would pray together and they would uh, wrestle with it. 
And uh, there was one particular boy in the group, as my friend was recounting this story with me, one particular boy in the group who had drawn some really clear boundaries and had not crossed those boundaries. And everyone in the group was pretty, like, in admiration of him. They're like, man, I, I have really struggled in this area, and, man, I'm so glad that you've kept where you said you'd want to be. You've kept those things out of your heart and mind. You've made good decisions. And on one particular morning, they're uh, going around, and it was this person's turn to share. And, uh, and the young man said, guys, for the first time, I, and he stated what he did. And in that moment, one of the youth group kids sitting around the circle got up and he ran out of the room. And so my friend kind of let them carry on and he went to go find this kid. They were meeting in a house. And he goes and he starts walking down the hallway to find out where the kid is. And he finds him in the bathroom. The kid had run down the hall. He had vomited in the toilet and he was just weeping because he knew the pain that that friend of his would from that moment forward start to experience because he knew the pain he felt from experiencing it. And I would suggest that we have been far too casual and that maybe we haven't had a response like that youth group kid that when he saw that moment, that brokenness in his friend, he realized that it broke him too. So instead of just simply going, well, that's the boys will be boys or that's the way things happen, that he actually broke for this kid. I think there's a phrase in the scriptures that reminds me of maybe what our approach should be. In Colossians 3, it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Put it to death. Do away with it. End it. Hold the line. Declare to someone else it's not okay. Keep setting the boundary. Keep fighting for it, right? Instead of being like, oh, good for you. Yeah. Good for you that you're just quick to rush into a relationship. Good for you that you made another poor decision on the weekend, good for you that you continually put yourself in the same compromising situation. Instead, how about somebody saying, where are you going this weekend? You're going there again? No, you're not. I'm not letting you. We'll do something else together. Or I'm taking your keys. I don't know. Do something, right? Something to say it's not okay for us to continue to be acting the ways that we're acting. We need partners who are willing to do things to maybe offend others for their good. The wounds of a brother or a friend are ones that change lives. In fact, James speaks to this idea. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. We have that power to come alongside someone and save them from something as they do the same for us. Next, woe to you, new community, for viewing marriage as a state-recognized contract rather than a God-ordained covenant. The 
The covenant of marriage is the single most important human bond that holds all of God's work on the planet together. This covenant of marriage is based on the covenant God has made with us. God even says what therefore he has joined together, let not man separate. It's this idea that we are not in a contract, we are in a covenant. And there are, in my mind and many others, a clear and significant distinction. See, from the beginning of time, God designed for us to be together. He said it's not good for us to be alone. It's important for us to be in relationship. And then he began to create us in his image. And then he joined, created people together to bear and signify the relationship he would have with his church. There is such significance to the idea of covenant that he's saying, if you want to know what it looks like, it looks like my commitment to you. My commitment to the people of Israel, my commitment to the church as a whole, which means it's a picture of fidelity. It's a picture of faithfulness. It's a picture of being deeply committed to another person. And we have taught here, and we will continue to teach, that what we see is a clear teaching in the scriptures that sex should always take place only at the center of a committed relationship. By committed relationship, we mean one partner. And by one partner, we mean a marriage vow before God for life. This is why the scriptures put such emphasis on the idea of a monogamous relationship. One partner who is supposed to mirror for the world our relationship with Christ. That it's only one love and that it's forever. That's the scriptural teaching on this subject. See, in the Bible, marriage is not just a contract that you enter into between two humans. It's deeper than that. It is a sacred bond that is both horizontal and vertical in nature. We make vows to one another, but we make them with God. We also happen to do it in the presence of witnesses, which also happens to be signed in a contract, binding with the state, so you get tax benefits. But that's not the point. Okay, Adam wasn't like cutting some deal on his taxes in the garden. Okay, that's just a state recognized contract. In fact, the thing that I even said to the elders, and it was probably eight years ago, I'm done with marriages. And what I mean by that is I get to sign it and say it's legal in the state, but then nobody comes back to me and says, will you unsign it? We're done with it. No, they just take care of it on their own after that. Well, I'm honestly, there's times where I say I'm tired of signing it because I don't get any control or any say on the other end of it. If you want me to sign it on the front end, then you better come back to me on the back end and say we're about to dissolve the thing and I'm going to go, I'm not signing off on that. Right? Or we're going to have a really serious conversation about it, but I don't have any control over that. Because... It isn't the contract that matters. It's the covenant that matters. It's what you declared before witnesses, but mostly before God and with the other. And that's what matters. We must make sure that we understand the importance of covenant. Woe to you, new community, for buying into the idea that the breakdown of the institution of marriage can be blamed on any other th- anything other than the breakdown of marriage. If you look at the statistics of divorce, 
If you look at the statistics of remarriage and then divorce after remarriage, we have a history, both inside and outside of the church, of breaking covenant. And it's been consistent. And that breaking of covenant, as many of you know, by experience, because of friends or personal or family members, that breaking of covenant destroys, it hurts, it's wounding, it's deeply personal, it affects everyone, right? It affects kids. They are sometimes the ones that are affected the most by the whole thing. And the truth is this, kids today don't want to enter into a covenant of marriage. They're far less likely to do it. And if they do enter into a covenant of marriage, they're far more likely to break it because it's what they've seen modeled. We hate to say those statistics, but these are the consequences of broken covenant and its effect on us as a community and as a culture. It's not some leftist agenda. It's not some homosexual agenda. It's not some whatever agenda. The breakdown of marriage in America and the breakdown of a marriage in the church is just the breakdown of marriage. We've quit. We've stopped honoring our commitments. Right? And that has significant repercussions on the community and on lives. We can just own it. We don't need to make excuses about it. It's an issue that all of us have felt. My, I think, second to last woe. Woe to you, new community, for taking a posture of us versus them toward our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. I don't care what you think your position is on this subject. I can tell you what it should never be. It should never be us versus them, period. It should always be we. Always. We belong to the body of Christ together. We are all people in need of Jesus. And we have all been called to love each other, period. So frankly, again... I'm not saying this to be mean. I don't care what you think about the subject. You are called to love. It's a command. End of sentence. You are called to love. And love is a rugged commitment. Love requires something of you. Right? It always includes things like presence. That means a withness. An ability to be with the other person. The ability to be close, to have companionship, friendship, connection. It requires, love requires that of us, right? It also requires learning. Love requires learning. Learning about the other. Learning about their lived experience. Learning about what they value. Learning about God in them. Learning about their faith. It is an openness to others. It is an openness to their lived experience. I think it always also includes advocacy. That means standing with and for others. We do that for any and everyone. We should always be advocating people. 
And it is no different for our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. Love is the command. And love is giving up control. It's surrendering the desire to control the other person. The two, love and controlling power over the other person, are mutually exclusive. You don't get to control. That's not part of love. So if your love does not somehow include presence and companionship and advocacy and surrender, then you must question if you have love or just some version of it. You can't just take a version of it and declare it as love. It has to be a rugged commitment to the other. Last but not least, woe. Woe to you, new community, that this topic of sexuality, that in this topic we have lost sight of Jesus. I've had far too many conversations with people over the years about this subject of sexuality, and somehow in the midst of it, we fail to recognize the importance of Jesus. We recognize the importance of sides, or we pick and choose what commands we want to follow, or we try to figure out what our theology or theory of sexuality is. But the Christian embodied sexual being is not a person who has accepted a particular set of theories about sexuality. It is not just the person that saves themselves from marriage, or not just the cisgendered or the straight, or the one that feels that their script on sexuality is all dialed in. Rather, the Christian embodied sexual being is the person who lives by the power of the joy that has been brought to life in the event of the resurrection of Jesus. It is Jesus that redeems, restores, reconciles, forgives, and loves. It is Jesus. And our understanding of sexuality is tied to the ways in which he describes and talks about it and its importance. And it is to Jesus that we echo these words in Jude now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, may glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In closing, I want to say this. I believe that whenever woes are spoken, moments of conviction, moments of challenge, there should also always be blessings spoken. I want to close by offering some blessings to our community. To the elementary student in our midst, God has created you just as you are, and you are deeply loved. To the middle school student in our midst, we didn't have it figured out at your age either. Questions are okay. Don't fear them, share them. And we will commit to learning alongside you. To the high school student in our midst, the decisions you make and the actions you take are shaping the type of person you will become. We believe in you, and affirm all the good we see in you. 
May the steps you take continue to be God working out your faith for his glory and good pleasure. To the college student and single professional in our midst, you are complete. You are a significant part of this family we call new community. Your leadership and voice are needed and are not dependent on your relationship status. To the gay brother or sister in our midst, of course we love you. Of course we welcome you here. I express my deepest sorrow if we in any way have not treated you with the compassion or if we have allowed fear to erode our relationship. We invite you to pursue Jesus with us and to recognize that you are beautifully and wonderfully made. To the sexually assaulted in our midst, we believe you. We are sorry. It's not your fault. We stand with you, and while we cannot take the pain away, we can be present with you in it, and you are loved. To the previously married in our midst, Christianity is the faith of endless new beginnings. While you might have imagined your commitment going differently, you have a chance to live into your current situation with grace. We journey with you in this next season. To the married in our midst, cultivate your faith and your commitment. Know that your relationship is a picture to those around you of the relationship with Christ and value the gift you have been given. To anyone I missed in our midst, you belong. You are deeply loved. This is a safe space for questions. And we will call each and every one of you and us to walk closely with Jesus. Let me pray. God, it is with grace and humility we offer these woes to ourselves, as staff and elders, small group leaders, and as a community of faith. It is also with humility and grace that we offer these blessings. God, may we be a community that is open to questions, that is open to challenge, that knows that this isn't the end of the conversation, but rather simply the beginning. That the conversations that will happen in groups and with each other on the drive home or when we grab coffee with someone this week, that these conversations will be the things that shape and form and allow us to embody what it means to be sexual beings created in your image, designed for partnership. May we follow you into what it is you're calling and inviting us to do. God, as we sing one final song and as we try to continue to hear from you and your spirit, I pray that you would further be present, that your voice would be louder, that it would overcome different questions or thoughts we might have, and that we as a community would continue